Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Moving Into the Future. Today, I am joined by Fred Buscalia from Macro. We're here at Savills today uh, to have a conversation about project management. Fred has been in the business for over 30 years. Thanks, Jack. Uh, yeah, Thanks for that. 30 years. <laughs> Thanks. <clears throat> 30 years, a long time, and he's seen a lot. So he's, he's a good person to have a discussion with. And at Macro, he's focused solely on the tenant representation side after spending a large amount of time at JLL. So, Fred, what's it been like uh, focusing now more solely on the, on the tenant's best interest? So um, one of the reasons why I came to Macro, lots of reasons, but one of the primary reasons was there's – purely focused on the tenant rep side, not the agency side, even though they have a lot of supporting um, groups within the organization, my focus is really on the tenant rep on the interior side of the business. Right, and, and it's so interesting when you do make that shift because in the past, you'd be working with both ends, and we've actually had you on the podcast before, a recurring guest. Exactly, this is my second one. Yeah. Um, so that's always been a challenge. On firms that do both um, agency work and tenant rep work, uh, being on both sides of the equation, uh, I think is a little, um, it could be positive, it could be uh, valuable to the, to the tenant uh, and to the landlord, but oftentimes uh, I think it's viewed as a little bit of a conflict potentially. And here, since we don't dabble in the, in the agency side at all, it's just full on tenant rep work. Right, and, and I think too, you know, I think of it like when you're working with a law firm, you know, you don't really want to be working with somebody who's, you know, working with the plaintiffs and the defendant. That, that can get a little sticky. Well, they have uh, lots of um, systems in place in law firms in the legal industry to protect against representing both sides of the, of the equation, if you will. Um, and in the real estate world, it still exists. And JLL has been doing it for a long time, and they've been very capable at working through the intricacies of having that potential conflict. But as I said, at Macro and at Savills, it really isn't an issue. We are 100% on the tenant side. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And I, and I know a couple people from Savills, and, and you guys do great work. I've had Gabe on uh, the Cornette podcast before, and you know he's talked a lot about the tenant representation and things like that. But you're focused fully, solely on project management and construction and going through that process with tenants mostly on the on the national scale too you've been here for six months now right yeah six months so what's been your biggest focus since making that shift here so you know when you change jobs and, and people change jobs for a variety of reasons right and the difficulty sometimes in deciding to change a job is finding the right place to go um, the right home if you will and as you pointed out earlier, I've been doing this for a long time. I don't feel like I have a lot of moves left in me. Right. I figure this is my last one. Uh, and as, as part of that, then, you have to really be careful about what it is that, you, um, that you're looking for. You have to, it, you know, it took me well over 14 months to really find the right place to, to, to land. Um, and realistically, when you decide to leave, your reasons for leaving become um, important because you want to uh, create a different environment for yourself. Now, the problem, of course, is who created the environment that makes you want to leave? Right. Is it you? Right. Is it the organization? Is it just the combination? In most instances, it's just the combination. In my instance, I was just looking for, for a different opportunity 
um, in a slightly, you know, smaller, more what I would say, I know people will will criticize this, but a more elegant way. Yeah. Um, and that's what and, and that's what kind of led me to both macro, uh, Michael Glatt, to be honest with you, and Savills. And I've had a lot of relationships over the years with the folks from Savills. A lot of them from the Studley days, which was the predecessor of Savills. And I've known Michael Glatt for quite a few years as well. And Michael and I have often discussed at some point working together. It never really aligned until uh, until uh, late last year when it kind of fell into place. And uh, it seemed like, uh, not just seemed like, it really was the right fit for me. So when you make that decision to leave, what, do you, what, you know, what happens to you emotionally is pretty dramatic. Right. And this isn't the first time I've left a job, and this isn't the first time I've started a new job. But, you know, you, it's that structure that you start to um, understand better about yourself. What motivates you? Mm -hmm. And everybody's motivated by, by different things. So that idea to move, if it's motivated by money, which it can be, and there's nothing wrong with that, then you have to find a place that's going to satisfy that motivation. If it's motivated by title or if it's motivated, motivated by the quality of the clients that the, you know, that the firm has, um, then those things become your focus. Um, and it's hard to change your focus if that's really what you're focused on. So my advice has always been to people, one, you should, on a regular basis, see what's in the market. Mm -hmm. See what is different from where you are. Sometimes it cements your reason to stay. Sometimes it makes you think, maybe, maybe now is the time for me to start looking. But it's the, it's the stripping away what could be the unhappiness of where you are for the value of where you're going to go. Because the unhappiness is what, is what oftentimes leads people down the wrong path. Right. right? It isn't the right way to look for a new job. I didn't like this here. I'm going to like it better here. Exactly. Chances are you'll like it better for a few months and then it's going to come back and you're going to, you know, you're going to be unhappy again. So you have to spend, take the time, understand what it is that you want to do, what you really want out of the organization, and then go and find it. Those aren't easy tasks. No, not at all. And, you know, you, you mentioned it. It's like, it's like being in any relationship too. Like, you know, when you get out of a relationship with another person, you you look at, okay, you know, this is what kind of went wrong in this relationship. I'm going to go look for something else. But then you might enter that relationship and you run into the same problems. And then you really have to get introspective and find out that, you know, it's probably me or, you know, something about me right. and what you're doing. And it's the same thing in the job hunt, in the job market. Uh, and it's become interesting, especially with my generation. You know, they're always looking for the next thing. You know, it's been very common. You don't find people staying at jobs for, you know, 10, 20 years anymore in my generation. They're always moving. And what they find is that there, there's never that happiness that they want out of work simply because either they can't find it, you know, within their own, you know, ambition and what they're looking to do professionally, or they, they just haven't found the route company. So what was your motivation, you know, when it, when it came to Savills and, and, you know, landed you here? You mentioned uh, the, the gentleman, his name is Michael? Michael Glatt. Yeah, right. Michael. Right. And, you know, working with him and that type of ambition, you know, especially when you have a good working relationship with somebody um, in different companies and, you know, you have the curiosity to work together to see what you could build. Was that one of the main components? Absolutely. But, you know, uh, realistically, I've, you know, I've been very lucky to have worked in organizations throughout my career um, and surrounded myself or acquainted myself with really quality people. No mm -hmm. difference at JLL than right. at Savills. It's a different business. Um, and I've been here six months, so I don't really have the full 
um, you know, full knowledge of what both companies are about, but I'm learning. And it's that learning, and you could say someone you know, of my generation, that learning phase is sometimes difficult because we're used to you know, being comfortable, being in a position, having all this knowledge, having all these experiences, having all these relationships, and you come someplace new and you have to develop new relationships. Mm -hmm. And so you ask, you know, my focus really since being here is to, one, understand what Macro does, understand their clients, understand Savills, get to get reacquainted with many of the brokers that I've known over the years and meet several of new ones. And I've had a really great experience over the over the first six months just understanding what the focus of the various brokers and the firm happens to be. Um, have great conversations with leadership at Savills, obviously great conversations with leadership at Macro, um, and it's become a really, uh, it's become a really rewarding first six months. Uh, and, but it's, it's difficult, Yeah. right? You wake up, you know, it's, there's an old book, um, years ago it's called who moved my cheese yeah, right right, right? Yeah. and it's really it's really true because you know you change someone's routine it takes a while to mm -hmm. get back into a routine so after six months I feel like I know where I'm going I get up in the morning I know where I'm going like I, I have all of my routine my new routine set and that provides comfort and so those are the things that um, it seems that become difficult for people the longer they're at one organization and that's what I hear a lot of people say I can't move. I've been here forever. Right. I've been here for 15 years. I wouldn't know how to start it. Becomes a, a part of their, you know, becomes their brand. a part, yeah. and that oftentimes um, also changes the, the way that they work right. and the drive and the motivation that they have within that organization. So I like, you know, what you say, your generation. I don't really know what the generations are anymore, but I will tell you that people shouldn't just stay someplace. Um, and there's two reasons for that, right? There's no more back even. Prior to my generation, my dad and my grandfather, they worked for the same company for their entire right, career, right? right? Um, there was employer loyalty and employee loyalty. Right. Those things don't really exist anymore, no. right? So you have to, that's the first thing you have to come to grips with is that they may, my company or my new company or my old company may think the world of me and I think I may be, you know, irreplaceable, but at the end of the day, everybody's replaceable yeah. and everybody should strive to make sure that they're protected and that they're covered. And that's a hard lesson um, for people of my generation because we always believed that, oh, this was a company I was going to spend the rest of my career with. Um, and a lot of the, you know, the more current generations are saying, oh no, I'm not going to put that much faith in anybody that I work for because I'm the person that has to develop my you know, my career. So that's a really unique stance, which is that people take responsibility and that responsibility, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but it propels someone to go out and look for something different. And as, as I said, as long as you are clear on what your motivation is and as long as you satisfy the motivation, then it's usually a, um, a well-executed decision. And if it isn't, and you're 25 or 30 or 35, very easy to fix that and move on to another, you know, another, uh, another firm. When you get to be my age, uh, right, doing that, moving after six months or a year is really viewed differently. Right. Like, well, why did you make that decision? Did you know better? What did you not know about that company? Um, so the good news is I knew a lot, and I talked to a lot of my friends here at Savills before I came on board, and I definitely had lengthy conversations um, uh, with the folks at Macro that I met along the way, and it just felt like the right you know, the, you know, the right place for me. Right. So, but it's, it takes time. And you mentioned the focus, though, you know, and how that focus changes. 
and it, it, it is very important because I remember when I started at Advanced Group, I had been working on the end user side, you know, for so long. So I wasn't in the, the service-based industry, even though I was serving, you know, uh, we were uh, members at that right. time, opening their spaces and, and things like that. But, you know, when you make that focus shift really back into sales and business development and also project management uh, and, and those type of things at a national level, the way that you wake up every day and approach every day is incredibly different because really your, your, I was like running my own business. You know, I was, I was starting and prospecting and figuring out strategies, whereas coming from more of the, the project angle to the, to the BD angle created a whole shift. So what is what is your focus been and, and shift been you know in the last six months yeah. that's really changed i mean that's 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 a really important um aspect of of uh of moving to macro which is i do have a much more expanded business development role doesn't mean i'm not going to still um, be involved in projects it doesn't mean that i won't uh, support clients in various projects throughout the course of my time here but there is a real focus on developing uh, one, existing relationships, but new relationships. And not just new relationships for macro, new relationships for me personally. Mm -hmm. So you're right, that focus is very different. You know, you get up every day, your focus is on what are my clients going to need from me today and how, what am I going to do to make contact or to potentially start building relationships with other clients and other people in the industry. And, you know, remember, this is, an, this is a, a, a huge dollar industry but right. it's a small industry right. in terms of the people right there's more so in new york city than other cities but my focus now is just not new york right. so i have i work i've had opportunities outside of new york uh throughout um throughout europe and throughout asia and i'll continue to pursue those opportunities uh with the benefit of a team here at macro that is really structured on managing projects uh across uh, the U.S. and across the globe without always having to have people on the ground in those areas. Mm -hmm. So those are that offers a whole different opportunity for me. Yep. So you can sell and I can sell the business um, in a very elegant and very sophisticated way. Um, and sometimes people are like, no, I need somebody on the ground. Well, that's that's great. And that's you know probably not the right opportunity for us if we don't have somebody in those areas. But we have macro PMs across the U.S. Right. We have Savills PMs across the U.S. and Savills PMs across Europe and Asia uh, in the Middle East. So we can cover those with boots on the ground. But primarily, uh, it's just been a much broader uh, stroke for me, brush stroke for me to develop business and continue. And look, I've had some success. I've not, I've not had as much success as I'd like to have so far. Um, the industry itself, the market itself, is is a little bit on its uh, on its head. But you know these things will work out, and you hope you're positioned yourself right uh, for the future. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to come back to what you were saying about working on projects globally. But more importantly, probably is the state of the market. Um, and I actually saw Gabe post this morning on LinkedIn. You know, uh, New York City currently has a much as much available office space as Austin, Texas, and Nashville, Tennessee does total in their entire market. Um, and that doesn't even include the sublease market. It, it's, it's made for quite a predicament for, you know, both landlords and tenants. Um, so, you know, how is that communication? How are you communicating with your clients now and specifically through mm -hmm. your, your specialty, you know, in construction and in project management? Are there certain things you're telling them to look for 
or uh, negotiate for because we had this conversation last time during COVID. Right. You know, when we, we talked about, you know, construction costs and things like that. What's the message now? So, uh, you know, the message is different. The industry is different. The message is a combination of things, which is you can't stop from uh, from making decisions. And that's what we learned in COVID early on is there was a lot of I'm just not going to make a decision. I'm just going to do what is the easy thing to do. I'm going to let my lease run out or I'm going to just renew for a couple of years, but I'm not going to make any decisions because not knowing is the is um, is the reason for not making that decision. In today's market, it's a little more sophisticated. It's a little more problematic in some ways, but people have to start making decisions again. And those decisions, albeit different than they have been in the past, we're not doing those 40, 50,000 direct build projects that we did, you know, many of us did day in and day out over the last 10 or 15 years. Those projects have become much smaller in some ways. They've become turnkey, built out by landlords, and, and, and they've also been uh, sublets or furnished sublets, space that was, you know, uh, that was left behind right. during, during COVID. Mm -hmm. um, that's what I see mostly in the business, so it is changing. But we have developed, I've developed over the last five years, this tenant advocacy approach, which is really guiding um, a tenant after the brokers have done all their work guiding the tenant through a turnkey situation. A turnkey, uh, when the landlord's building out the space, no matter what anybody says during the negotiations and what anybody writes in the work letter, at the end, when it's being built, there's always this, I would say, struggle yep. on the tenant to make sure they get what they want yep. and what they feel they're entitled to. And for the landlord to provide what they believe the tenant is entitled to, which sometimes is contrary. So, so that's what we see, that's what I'm seeing predominantly now in the market. And there's a lot of tenants out there that don't believe because it's a turnkey that they need proper representation from a PM. Couldn't be further from the truth. Absolutely. And it becomes, it's really fundamental in the process. And that doesn't mean that the brokers, the brokers do a phenomenal job finding the space, negotiating the lease terms, um, and then getting money uh, from the landlord to actually modify the space or upgrade the space. But having said that, if the landlord takes on the responsibility, there is a, there is a, um, a lack of transparency. In a direct build, we see everything. Mm -hmm. We hire the contractor, architect, engineer, all the consultants, watch the space getting built, involved in every step of the way. In a turnkey, we are excluded from a lot of those decisions and a lot of that process. So we have to understand and work a little bit differently in order to represent the tenant better. Those are based on relationships. Right. You, may, you can be a great PM, but if you don't have the relationship with the landlords or the contractors or the architects who are willing to say, Fred, as, your, as, your, as the representative for your tenant and us having such a strong relationship and knowing you've supported us in the past and you support the landlord, we can work in a more collaborative way. We can get more done more quickly and without as much controversy, if right. you will. Well, how, how come I didn't get new shades? Well, it says you're not getting new shades. How come I didn't get new lights? Well, it says you're not getting new lights. You walk me around, you show me all this, all your pre-built space, and it's got beautiful lights, and I don't have these lights. Right? Those are the things that people hear during the process, and then doesn't necessarily manifest itself in the lease or in the work letter, or it does in a way that is un, that people it's open to interpretation. Mm -hmm. That interpretation is where the issues come into play. I interpreted that to mean this. I, I just have one, I have one that I'm working on right now. 
where the question is between down lights and lay-in fixtures. I know it sounds really parochial to talk about lighting like that, but it's become a huge issue on this particular project because the client's like, I'm going to have 70 or 80 incandescent down lights in my space versus versus 100% LED lights. So that that's something that that the the tenant thought they were getting, and the landlord is saying no. Yeah. So now you know we're ultimately going to reach some accommodation on both sides, but left to its own, it would have ended up as a fight. Yeah. Right. And and lighting, for what it's worth, is a huge aspect to a space, especially in today's nature, where you are really doing everything you can to draw people into your space. Lighting is a huge component in that. So I do understand the conflict within that. But that's the thing, too, is once that gets discovered, if you, if you have a situation where we're, you're working together, you know, with the landlord representing the tenant from early on in that process, you're going to be able to identify that quickly. But then once you get down the process and that lighting's already been installed and you have to come to some type of resolution, the amount of money that that costs is substantial. Just uh, emotional collateral, yeah, too. Yeah, it's a it's it's becomes. You know, you enter into a tenant-landlord relationship mm -hmm. uh, in an uncomfortable position already. Right. And, you know, that goes back to the other, you know, uh, point that I've made for years, which is love working with the brokers. I've been very successful in working with the brokers at JLL and just, you know, starting to, to, to introduce myself to the brokers here at Savills. Um, and I am a part of the ORPM, the Owners Rep Project Management Alliance, which is educational group um, that helps tenants and helps clients understand what a PM does and why you would want to actually hire a PM. That's interesting. So so that's a very important factor. And by the way, it is all of the top PM firms in the city that are part of that organization. But what it, it's not just educating the clients, though, and tenants. It's also educating the brokers. Right. Because we can be more useful to them. Mm -hmm. We can help them through difficult uh, aspects of negotiating a term in a lease with a landlord and a tenant who just can't seem to be, you know, get, uh, you know, get on the same page with a particular thing. It usually comes down to uh, air conditioning. It mm -hmm. comes down to electrical consumption. Yep. All of those things become almost moot at the end of it because you've spent a lot of time arguing over something that is what it's going to be anyways and getting people comfortable with the, re you know, with the situation. I've had people argue over a degree on an HVAC setting, right? Oh, I'm gonna get between this degree and that degree during the summer, and this degree and that degree during the winter. And at the end of the day, none of those things are really relative because the basis is on is on things that are not real life. It's written, it's in the lease. Right. The landlords can say, I'm, I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing, but if your tenant's uncomfortable because it's too hot or too cold, are you really gonna let that main, you know, go the way it goes? So those are the things that we can kind of work out early on. And a lot of those terms in leases today are antiquated terms. They're right. things that we don't, that aren't relevant anymore. We're not engineers, many of them. I mean, a lot of people that do what I do are in fact engineers, but when we're, the brokers aren't necessarily engineers, the PMs aren't necessarily engineers. And when we try and explain to a tenant what is the reality of that term, it becomes, overly complicated it becomes a rallying point for one side or the other to say i'm not giving in or i'm not giving right. in and we spend too much time worrying about a degree or two when in reality if it's cold in the winter time to ta have a conversation with the chief engineer and say it's really cold up right. here can we do something about it or it's really hot in here can we do something about it those are the things that become that we now should focus on 
more than just those, you know, some of those individual specifications because they don't always hold up. Would, people walk around with a temperature saying, oh, you dip below the, yeah, the right. you know, the number. So is the siren going right? to go off? Yeah, there's, there's really no way to know. And, right. But we spent a lot of time negotiating those, uh, you know, those points. Right. Um, and, you know, you mentioned, too, a couple of things, but the collateral, uh, excuse me, the uh, emotional collateral, that's a really good way to present what you do and the value you can provide to both a tenant and a landlord, you know, to, to save them the, uh, the just energy and, you know, and, and time it's going to take to go through these, these, these points that in the end really, really don't take a lot of time. And what's so important too now, especially is the tenant experience, you know, is, is making sure that they want to come to these office buildings. And a lot of, you know, the high class A buildings have, have done the necessary things with, you know, the um, amenity space. Exactly. Right. And those sort of things. Um, <clears throat> but now you're seeing it in, in the, you know, lower class A buildings, class B buildings, and I don't even know about class C buildings. They're in a tough spot. But, you know, anything they can do to to make it a better client experience and, you know, bringing on someone like Savills, both from a tenant and project management representation side, can save them a lot of that emotional collateral. I mean, those are that's really what we should be focused on. Uh-huh. Is is building the relationship, making sure that everybody's clear what the terms are. And look, I'm not going to supplant the need for lawyers to of negotiate, course, yeah. right? That's, that's um, you know, that's kind of silly for me to say. And I'm not saying that we should ignore what the lawyers say at all. All I'm saying is that we should be a little bit more pragmatic when it comes to certain aspects of the lease and the employee experience, mm -hmm. right? So we should be focused on what is the team, what is, what is my, what is my team, uh, tenant A, what is my team going to feel about this space? What are they going to, you know, what do they want? Now, look, we've all been in those meetings where people making decisions on the client side have said, I don't care what my team wants. This is what they're getting. And on the other hand, people have spent a lot of time trying to understand what the employees want, and they still don't come back to work. Like, right. we've been seeing that, too. So, so I don't, I wish I had the crystal ball. I wish I had the answers. Uh, the only thing I can tell you is that we've had to change our focus. We've had to change what we do and how we do it. Um, and we have to continue to, to, to understand what it is that people want. And, you know, I don't, we lean on architects, we lean on engineers, we mm -hmm. lean on property managers. Believe it or not, you learn so much about a building when you talk to the tenants in that building, oh, when yeah. you talk to the property manager, when you talk to the chief engineer. And those used to be things that people just didn't do. Now everybody's out there, right? Right. You know, everyone's doing podcasts. Everybody's exactly. putting articles up exactly. on, on LinkedIn. Everyone's talking about their workplace and return to office and how to build the better office and what people are looking for. I don't know. I mean, I think there's a lot of great suggestions out there. There's a lot of useful information. I don't really know if anybody's captured it properly yet. <clears throat> it is fascinating. And, you know, as far as, like, the podcasts go and the information and the content, I think people really want to be thought leaders because we're going through this evolution of work where there's a lot of opportunity to have different thoughts and uh, go about it in different ways. So, you know, I, I focus mostly on the, um, the, the moving aspect and the global and national um, aspect of, of that, what we do in our world. But even still, you know, I was, I was on a, a workplace strategy team at Indeed and our client there was the employee, and we right. always made focus of that <clears> when we built out our offices. You know, what is going to provide uh, the best employee experience for our employees? And, and we took a different approach if we were building an engineer office than we would for a sales office. 
I remember we put floor-to-ceiling windows in one of our uh, buildings for our engineers, and we had gone back like uh, six months later after it opened, and all the blinds were down, and it's pitch black. <laughs> right. Yeah. <clears throat> you know. We and see a lot of that. Right. Exactly. We see a lot of that. And it's things like that, though, that you you know, it's if you have to take into consideration. Now, though, it's a completely different animal and a completely different beast, and it's it's going to be fascinating because especially. In a place like New York City, you don't come here or live here to sit in your apartment. Well, the interesting thing is, and I think everybody's noticed this, this is nothing, you know, uh, groundbreaking, but, you know, you walk on the streets, and we saw this in COVID, right? You, you know, during the height of COVID, everybody was too uh, uncomfortable coming to the office, yet they were nose to nose in yeah. pubs on the Upper right. East Side, Upper West Side, right. Lower Manhattan. It's the same thing. Right, but now when you go on the streets, traffic is back. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you've taken a cab recently, yeah. taken an Uber recently, try to get a try to find a quick lunch place. You know, recently, it's impossible. So people are back. Where are they? Right. That's kind of where I'm curious about is where are they? And and that's the thing. You know, is it the commuters? You know, who it's like the people who live on Long Island or upstate in New Jersey who just don't want to get on the train, and that's a large portion of you know these uh, these employees. Um, it would be with the city offices in the city, but I can't imagine that's more than 50% of a lot of companies. I don't, you know, honestly, I, I feel like the, um, the, uh, activity levels in the city are absolutely pre COVID activity levels without a doubt, but yet we're still seeing this reduction in office space. I guess the question is, is it half of the office for a certain period of time and the other half? <clears throat> excuse me for the other time so rp people just platooning coming to the office and being out uh, <clears throat> you know in the industry i don't know i don't know what the answer is but i see a lot of empty offices i see a lot of people on the streets it doesn't add up to me sometimes like where is that disconnect it's fascinating want to take a break real quick and get a glass of water uh yeah you good <clears throat> i'm good you good yeah. okay um we can restart um, I said it's fascinating. Um, let me get my next thought. Uh, I would definitely want to talk about the uh, the national work and stuff like yeah. that. But yeah, we can keep on this. Um, hmm. Okay. It's fascinating, and it's going to be fascinating to see. You know, when push comes to shove, now, and if this available office space keeps increasing. What really happens? You know, are we going to see conversions? Are we going to see buildings getting knocked down and rebuilt? You know, based on cost and value and stuff like that. Um, because again, the foot traffic. I mean, you look out the window here. Park Avenue is is you know, full of traffic, full of cars, people walking. So, you know, what ultimately happens is going to be really interesting. And again, what are we? We are two years post COVID, really. I guess. The beginning of 2022 is when people really started to get back into, you know, living normally and, right. and stuff like that. That's spring. So maybe about a year. Um, mm-hmm. I guess it could change because like every bubble, you know, every bubble pops, right. you know. You, you know, it's, it's, it's a really interesting point because there's oftentimes a correlation between the residential market and the commercial market. And what we're seeing now uh, is the residential market has still stayed the rents have really stayed high and they're going up and inventory's way down. Mm-hmm. And again, 
So I'm, I'm just, I'm, I guess there's still people, a lot of people living in the city. And of course, I've heard it over the course of my career every time there's been a downturn in the market for whatever reason, including COVID, but including financial situations, all oh, the city's dead, people are leaving in droves, city's just going to, you know, it's never going to be the same city. It always comes back, yeah. right? That's the one thing we learned about New York. It always comes back. So interestingly enough, from a residential perspective, it's busy. It's yeah. crowded. Just look at the market. Look at the inventory. Um, and I live in Manhattan, and I've lived in Manhattan uh, exclusively for the past 22 years. So I've seen a lot of different – I've seen 9-11, post-9-11. I've seen post-financial crashes. I saw this um, savings and loan crash, right? right? So I've seen all those things, and I've heard all the same statements over and over, and I just kind of brush them away. This is very different. It is. What we're experiencing now is very different. Um, but yet there's still a demand for talent in this city, from even if people working from home. One of the biggest aspects. Right? So the question is, if I still have to commute three days a week, four days a week, I think it's really going to go to four, but let's just say it's three. Um, do I want to be in the city or do I want to be in the suburbs? Does that commute, is it just simply better if I live outside the city and come in three days a week? Or is it still way more fun to be in the city, way more less taxing on me from a commuting perspective to be in the city, right? Have a 20-minute commute versus an hour-and-a-half commute, right? Rents being what they are, you live in smaller space, it's hard to work at home. There's all these conflicting components, yeah. components to it. And uh, I think it's just a really interesting time to see what happens, both on the commercial side and on the residential side. But, you know, from a, from a city perspective, maybe what happens is a lot of the support services for the commercial real estate business, small brokerage firms, PM firms, um, very you know, smaller consultants, right, that always had a piece of the industry, piece of the business, maybe, maybe they start to feel the pressure more than the firms like, you know, like Savills and Macro and some of the other large PM and, and brokerage firms because it, maybe it's just a winnowing down of, of who supports that industry. Right. Um, don't know. I mean, it, that's kind of a dark approach to it, but things will change, right? Firms will become different. Mm -hmm. um, emphasis on what people need to do to drive business will change, right? Exactly. So. And see, that's, I think, one of the advantages that I have at the advanced group and that you have at Macro is we are national and we are global. And that was a huge pivot that we made during COVID specifically. And right. you know, because my work is national, I don't depend on New York City for my income. Right. You know, my income is, is based all across the, the world. And you know, I do different projects across the world and it's a unique proposition too is because not a lot of other movers had made that pivot yet. No, right. a lot of movers are still New York City based and local based and transactional based. Whereas me and the advanced group, we're, we're very account based. We're gonna work with you and develop best practices and you know, technology implement, impl impl implementations um, and those sort of things to help you, you know, function better within your workspaces. And that's the same thing you guys do at Savills. So, you know, what the, what's Eric, Savills and Macro, what's that approach been like for you? So, you know, I've always been national and global. The focus here is a little bit different um, because of the way that we're structured and the processes that we've developed internally at Macro. It actually lends itself to supporting work outside the city yep. much better, mm -hmm. much more efficiently. Um, and clients are starting to see that. Potential clients are starting to see that. 
So that's a value that we have here that I was very interested in understanding becoming a part of. Because it, as you said, it broadens my opportunities, yep. right? It broadens the industry's opportunities. But New York is still is still a hub, and it will oh, always yeah. be a hub. And New York, interestingly enough, a lot of my global projects um, really stem from, from New York-based companies or big, present New York uh, New York City businesses that um, have a certain position within their organization and, uh, and have taken on a bit of a leadership approach from a real estate perspective. So we see, we still see a lot, and you know, the brokers here and, and, the, and, and my team at Macro, um, and the resources that exist, we traveled both from the uh, U.S. perspective, and they're not massive like some of the other uh, uh, brokerage firms are. Just really targeted in cities that they believe have the most uh, have the biggest growth potential. But then throughout Europe, um, all the uh, all continents supporting those those projects there. And lots of different ways. Savile, you know, has residential side. Mm -hmm. Well, never has residential side. I have no. I don't know the residential market. I'm just saying it's it's really it's really opened my eyes to what you can do in a more nimble business than some of these behemoths where right. it's set its course and it's not turning, right? And turning those huge organizations into channels. And a more nimble organization like Savills and Macro, we can turn very, we can pivot very quickly. So we can adjust much more quickly than other firms can adjust. So, and that's really what we're trying to do now is to, what is that pivot? Yeah. And be ready. Even if we don't know it today, when it pivots, we will be there to be part of that process. That's the that's what is truly going to separate, you know, firms, certain firms from other firms. Yeah, and that is a such an important aspect of a company during a time like this is being nimble and being capable of analyzing truly what is going on in the market, what do our clients need, and how can we provide it for them? And that is something that, that Macro and Savills does extraordinarily well. If, and you can look at their um, you know, res resume and pedigree over the last five right. to 10 years. They've done that you know, very actively with Macro. Uh, I believe there was another uh, component to Savills that isn't coming to mind right now that uh, delved into shared workspace and um, the the uh, analyzation of companies. Yeah. Uh, group, uh, the workplace team. Right. Again, all the pieces that exist in the much larger firms exist here to a certain extent within Savills uh, and Macro. It's just that it's more, um, uh, I would say, firm-wide based right. than the individual practice needs. Yep. Right? So there's lots of things that I still have to learn here. There's lots of things that I look forward to learning um, but you know there there is there's um, there's change. We yeah. know that, right? It's a little scary sometimes. Um, we started about changing jobs, and now the and the you know things are going to change and continue to change. And changing jobs at this time, look, I people had questioned me like, why would you change coming out of COVID? And I said, well, this is a good time. Right. Exactly. This gives me an opportunity to really kind of dig in and get to know things and not have to be running five, six, seven projects at the same time. So. This was a nice opportunity to really get to know uh, what macro is about. And of course, we've been busy. I've been busy. Um, I've, I've been busier, but surprisingly, um, you know, every day things, you know, you start to, you hear things that are going on in the industry, 
not just talk. So that's a, that's a big piece of it. Every, for anybody who's supporting commercial real estate business, they talked about quietly, outside of their clients necessarily, about the difficulties in getting people to make decisions. Yeah. We show them, we show them, we show them, present them, present them, present them, put a lot of effort forward for them to say, thanks for coming. Right? And that's fine. I'm mm -hmm. not saying there's a problem there, but the brokers and people on, you know, the PMs, especially folks like myself who do a lot of advisory work, we are constantly trying to get to our clients. What, where are you today? What are you thinking? Where, how can we help you? Here's what we're hearing. Here's what we're seeing in your industry. Um, so enlighten people, get people engaged so that we can help them make decisions. I think the reason why people weren't making decisions is because we weren't offering solutions. Right. We were just saying, here's the problem. Yep, you know, exactly. What do you want to do? Mm -hmm. You can go here, you can go there, you can go there. That's not necessarily a solution, right? It is, but it's not an elegant solution. Exactly. Um, you know, so the, the deal should be understand what my clients want, um, understand what they're, you know, you can't ask them to tell you what they want. Of course not. Because, by the way, what they tell you and what is reality is oftentimes different anyway, right? So people will say, I want a beautiful office to come to every day with a sofa on the side. Right. People say, I want free lunch. They provide free lunch. If lunch goes bad, yep. how do you Again, it's learning and understanding what is going to drive people to come to the office, and some of it is just going to naturally happen. Exactly, people that's what I think is going to happen. There's that little bit of oh, I feel a little bit left out of FOMO, right? Exactly. Right? But I look at it more from a training perspective. The more junior you are on any team, you learn a lot by other people's interactions, overhearing people's interactions, those those casual collisions that you come upon during the course of your workday that you're not having anymore because you're not in the office. Right. And it was largely in tech, too, and they just had the massive layoffs, uh, you know, about six months ago, you know, right around the holidays and the new year. And you think that'd be the wake up call for a lot of these people where we were talking about earlier, too, when you're at these big behemoth of companies, they don't really care about, you know, you, you are an employee to them and you are expendable. Exactly. And a number, um, you know, and you would think as these people reenter the job market now, many maybe, you know, for the first time, you know, since they've graduated college. Um, or, or the second time tops, you know, you th you'd think they'd take on a new approach. I'm going to go to this new company, being a junior now, you know, starting new, I need to be present. I need to be there. I need to understand the culture, you know, what people expect of me. Again, this is all tying back to how we started this conversation yeah. in terms of being introspective and discussing with yourself, you know, is it, was I the problem or was the company the problem, you know? It's hard to, it's hard to admit yeah. that I may have been part of the problem. Right. Right. Personally. And it's hard to do it in a personal relationship. It's hard to do it in a business mm -hmm. relationship. Um, and, it's, and uh, you know, those are things that become, you know, very important. And by the way, um, you, you know, you should be on any decision you make between companies. Should be a little scary. If you don't question that yeah. at several times during the first six months to a year of right. your relocation, you probably haven't made the right decision. Right. Exactly. Being uncomfortable isn't always a bad thing, no. you know, because no. it, it allows for change. And it, as long as that change is for the better and the betterment of yourself and the company you're working for, then in the long run, it's all going to work out. But uh, go ahead. And, you know, and it becomes more holistic. That what we do as PMs, we have to be more holistic. And what do I mean by that? 
it to our advantage by saying there's architect PMs, there's engineering PMs, there's PMs in all the consultants, and you know we have superintendents, assistant superintendents right. on the construction side, but PMs have to be able to understand a much wider range. Oh yeah. Don't have that wheelhouse. So we may have our subject matter expertise at times, but we have to broaden it, and we have to continue to broaden it. We have to we have to be able to offer solutions to to our clients, our potential clients that people haven't offered them before, right? So again, it's constantly understanding the market, constantly understanding what's available out there, and and uh, everyone says this, but like listen, right? yep. talk to your talk to your clients, and and you know. I use this all the time. People make fun of me, but anybody can run a project, right? I can run a project, but I can build anywhere. On the other hand, it's much harder to build a building space. Yep. But it's much more rewarding to build a relationship, and it's much more profitable to build a relationship, right? So in many instances today, we talked about this earlier, I'm not always chasing projects, of course I'm chasing projects, but I'm also chasing relationships. Right. People that I can say, Exactly. That the competitiveness is gone. That means doesn't mean they're not going to send it out competitively bid, right? Uh, when something actually goes on, it just means that we're now starting to develop those relationships. Exactly, and it's that trust and the the understanding that you know, regardless of whether it's a big project or there's there's tiny questions or details that that you need assistance within your portfolio. We mentioned the lease negotiations right. and that that type of intricacy. Uh, before, you know, we can help. And that does, again, the same conversations I have with clients. Like, you know, listen, I don't care if you don't have an office move coming up for two to three years. There's there's a litany of other things that, you know, we can yeah. assist with across your portfolio. And even if it is just, you know, getting some desks out of there for liquidation or, uh, you know, putting some things in storage for the time being or whatever it may be, you know, we can help and, and just yeah. create that relationship and understand how do we communicate with each other, which is a huge aspect of it, you know? How do you how do you like to be communicated with? What type of questions do I need to ask you? You're talking about, you know, often creative solutions and stuff like that. Once I understand how you operate within your organization, uh, you know, what type of, uh, what the hierarchy is or, or a variety of things, who's responsible for what, that's when you can start to offer those creative solutions to say, hey, you know, I see you're doing it this way. If we implemented this this software, you know, this this would help, you know, a lot with whatever it may be. There's lots of ways, examples, and there's lots of those opportunities uh, to engage with a, a, a potential client or an existing, you know, client to kind of help them through the process, mm -hmm. support them. Um, I, I don't, I don't know, you know, as we said earlier, where this goes. I don't think any of this goes. Um, I don't even think we know the time frame. No. Right. right. 
And that's kind of how we started this conversation, you know, as far as the change goes, uh, you know, as it, as it does change, Fred, we appreciate you having on the podcast and having these discussions. This was great today. So, uh, yeah, no, my pleasure. Thank you. And looking forward to the next conversation and see where we're at then. Sounds good. Thank, thanks again, Fred. Thanks, everybody, for listening.